Well, we've got, um, we've got the Alpha course starting in the new year. I uh, don't know whether you know about the Alpha course, but we did one earlier this year, January uh, through to March, in the King's Arms pub, uh, which a lot of the best things happen in the pub, I always think. So uh, we had 10 weeks, Tuesday evenings, um, and it's just an opportunity for anybody to come along, regardless of what you believe or whether you're a Christian or you don't believe in God or you're not quite sure, to just come along and ask really the big questions of life and see, uh, you know, what does Christianity have to say uh, in response to the big questions uh, and to just ask whatever questions that we've got. And so uh, we'll say a little bit more about it closer to the time, but we've got another one that's going to happen in January, uh, Tuesday evening, starting on January the 17th. I'll give the date a bit closer to the time. And, but if I could make one prediction about this alpha, um, I'm sure we'll have a great time, but my one prediction would be that at some point somebody will mention Hitler. It always happens. Uh, I don't know whether you... Do you know Godwin's Law? Godwin's Law apparently states that the longer a conversation goes on and the more deep it gets, the higher the probability is that somebody will draw a comparison to the Nazis. And uh, do you know what? It happens again and again. It always happens. Somebody... You know, the more that you start talking about the love of God... The more you start talking about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the kindness of God and the fact that God loves us no matter what we've done. You know, his love for us is unconditional. The more you really, really get to grips with that idea, somebody at some point goes, hang on a minute. Are you you saying that um, what if somebody's really bad? You know, could God love somebody who was, say, a murderer if they repented? What about Hitler? And somebody always asks that question, can the love of God even reach to the worst of the worst? Well, I don't know what you think, what your answer is. Uh, But the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector has got something to say to us about this this morning, about how big God's love is and whether the worst of the worst can really be accepted. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the key to understanding this parable, if you have a look down at it, if you've got it open there, the key word to unlock it is in verse 14. It's the word justified. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. In fact, so that's the key word. It actually comes at the start as well. It's the word righteousness, translated slightly differently in English, but it's the same word in the original Greek. To some who are confident of their own righteousness, Actually, it's the same thing. Righteousness and justice in the Bible, it's the same thing. So this is a parable all about who is justified. Now, that's a legal word. You know, that's a, that, if you imagine you're in court and you're up before the judge, you're really to be justified or not is when the hammer comes down and the verdict is given, am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be condoned or condemned? Will, when I approach the judge, will he accept me? Will I be justified? That's the question. So um, uh, this parable is all about that, and it's about the fact that there are basically two ways that we can approach God. Two, if you like, two lines of defence, two ways to plead when we stand before God, the judge, and they're illustrated by the two characters in this parable. And one of these results, one of the, the ways we can plead before God results in us being justified, and one way does not. Now, I wonder what you would say, if you had to say, well, what, how does God the judge decide whether or not he's going to justify somebody? If we went and stood out in Market Square and asked, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who passed by and said, look, if there's a God, 
and he really exists, and there's going to be a judgment day, how will he decide at the end who's going to be justified, who's going to be accepted, who's going to be welcomed into heaven? Don't you reckon, I reckon most people would say that the, the basis on which we're justified is whether or not we've been a good person, right? So, so I think a lot of people think something like this. If there's a God, well, it'll be whether or not you've been a good person that is what matters. And by the way, in brackets, even if they don't spell it out, what they're really saying is, and I'm a good person. So if there's a God, well, I'll be okay because I'm a good person. I may not be perfect, but I've led, I've led a good life. Well, spoiler alert, the point of this parable is to say that that whole way of thinking is absolutely backwards. The punchline of this parable is that actually the guy who thinks he's a good person is not justified, and the guy who you would think, well, they're really not a good person, was the one who was justified. So look at the way the parable finishes up, verse 14. It's the guy you don't expect who was justified, and he finishes up by saying, look, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So he says it's completely topsy-turvy, all the way backwards. We've got to change our thinking. So have a look down, verse 10. This is how it begins. The parable starts off, verse 10. Two men go up to the temple to pray. Who are these two men? One's a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Now, uh, immediately we've got a problem, because when we hear this parable, what do we do? When Jesus says, well, the first character, see, act one, scene one, steps onto the stage, a Pharisee, we all go, boo, we know the, Phar- the Pharisee is going to be a baddie. We, you know, we, it's, we even might call someone a Pharisee now as a negative thing to call somebody, isn't it? But you know, actually, that's not the reaction that the people who would have heard this when Jesus taught this parable would have had. Because all the Pharisees were, the Pharisees were a, were a group within Judaism who basically just took their faith really seriously. They were just basically committed God-fearing, morally upstanding people who were trying to worship God properly. That's all they were. So when um, Jesus says, now, two men go up to the temple to pray, one's a, one's a Pharisee, they are all listening and going, ah, well, this is going to be somebody of whom God approves. This is somebody who's going to be accepted by God. You know, who would be the equivalent today? This is a stereotypical, you know, good Religious person, churchgoer, never swears, probably on the PCC, you know, probably gives plenty of money away to charity, probably helps out the food bank. I mean, look at all the good stuff this guy does in verse 12. He fasts regularly. He gives a tenth of all his income. I mean, that's unbelievably generous. To give away a whole tenth, I mean, I think Chris, the treasurer, would love it, wouldn't she, if, uh, if everybody here gave away a tenth of all their income uh, to the poor. That'd be amazing. So this is a guy who's really working hard at trying to be a good person. So if the first character is a stereotypical good person, well, the second character is a stereotypical bad person, right? So he's a tax collector. Tax collectors have never enjoyed the best reputation, have they? Um, But if you can believe it, they were even less popular in Jesus' day than they are in ours. Basically, the reason was, because if you know, in Jesus' day, Israel was under Roman occupation. It was part of the Roman Empire. So they, and and the people in Israel hated that. They wanted freedom and independence. Yes, they had their own king and their own government, but actually it was only a puppet king and a puppet government. The real people who were in charge was Rome. So the tax collectors, they were basically like mercenaries because they weren't raising taxes for Israel. They were raising taxes to be sent over to Rome. 
So everybody hated them because um, they were, what they had to do was they had to raise, they had to, a certain amount they had to raise to put into the central Roman pot. Everything above that they could just keep for themselves. So they were hated for two reasons. One, because they were getting rich while everybody else was suffering. And two, because they were traitors. They were in collaboration with a hated foreign power. And so actually, one writer says that in Jesus' day, tax collectors weren't so much people to be made jokes about as people to spit at when you went past. They were really the lowest of the low, the tax collectors. No wonder, verse 13, he stood at a distance... He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. This is a total contrast, isn't it? Complete contrast. You've got the good person and the bad person. The good religious person who gives to charity, the bad person who's financially corrupt. How would Jesus have told it today? Who's the best person you can think of? Probably Mother Teresa, maybe. So the parable of the nun, and who's the worst person you can ever think of? Obviously Hitler. Uh, So it's like the parable of the nun and the Nazi. It couldn't be more extreme. It's a good person and it's a bad person. But the shock of the parable comes at the end, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, the baddie, the sinner, the corrupt person, rather than the other, the good person, the religious person, was the one who went home justified before God. How can that be? How can it be that it's a bad person who God accepts and it's a good person who God says no to? Well, the point, the point that Jesus is making, the point of this parable is that when we approach God, what matters is not what we have done for God, but what God has done for us. What matters is not what we've done for God, but what God has done for us. There's two ways of approaching him. We can either come before him when he's the judge and say, look, judge, this is everything I've done for you. Or we can say, thank you for what you have done for me. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. So, well, sometimes, don't you wonder, if you're reading the Bible, you go, why on earth is this in the Bible? Sometimes it tells us why this bit's in the Bible. Look at verse 9. It tells us why Jesus told this parable. So Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness. They're confident of their own righteousness. He's telling it as a warning to people who think, I'm basically a good person. You know, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. If God's there, he's going to accept me because I'm confident of my own righteousness. Surely that's what this Pharisee was doing. You know, he was convinced he was a good enough person for God. You can tell that by the way he prays in verse 11. He stands by himself and prays, God, I thank you that... What's he going to thank God for? Thank you for all your provisions for me. Thank you for like Chris has just done. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. No, no. Thank you that I, this prayer is all about himself, isn't it? Thank you that I am not like all those other guys over there. I do this. I do that. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. His prayer was by himself. His prayer was about himself. It's actually apparently a fair translation of this verse that he was, his prayer was to himself. He's completely self-centred. And Jesus is saying that if our confidence is in ourselves, then it's misplaced. So this guy was driving along the highway of life, like many people I think do today, a little bit like I drive on the motorway. I probably shouldn't admit this in a sermon. I don't, I'm sure I'm probably not the only person who does this. 
Um, but when you're on the motorway, does anybody else think that 70 miles an hour... Well, it's a little bit slow, isn't it? It's a little bit slow, 70 miles an hour. So there we are, we're driving along and we're thinking, well, actually, do you know what? They only brought these speed limits in, you know, because of a fuel crisis, you know, a few decades ago. And actually, modern cars, with their modern brakes, are much more capable of driving safely at higher speeds than they were when they brought these speed limits on. And actually, you know, if we were in Europe, well, their speed limits are much higher. And there we are, we're driving along the motorway at more than 70 miles an hour, completely self-righteous, just justifying ourselves, going, well, look, I'm a good driver. Yes, I might not be keeping the highway code perfectly. And look at that guy, anyway, speeding past at 95 miles. Now, they're not going to pull everybody over. Look at him. They're going to pull him over before they pull me over. And we're just absolutely self-righteous, going, I am a good driver. Well, I think that's what so many people do in this life. We go, well, look, I might not be perfect, but I'm... I'm a good person, I might not be perfect. Look at that guy speeding along, by the way, which is a brilliant tactic if we're comparing ourselves to other people, because there's always somebody who's worse than you. Verse 11, thank you that I'm not like that guy at 95 miles an hour. Robbers, evildoers, adulterer. I'm good enough. You know, I'm doing all this stuff right. And some people are saying, I'm a good person. And it might be this morning. Your attitude might be, if God exists, when I stand before him, if I stand before him, I will be justified because I am a good person. I'm confident in my own righteousness. Well, the loving warning of Jesus this morning is that actually none of us are good people. None of us are. The proper point of comparison is not against other people and how bad they are. The proper point of comparison is against the law and how we're doing compared to that. And the Bible is clear, and our human experience confirms, that none of us have kept God's law perfectly. I'm sure nobody would claim otherwise. I mean, it's very, very striking what Celia read from Jeremiah 14. Did anybody wince when she was reading it? Because I think we probably should have. It started off by saying, our sins testify against us. It says, uh, uh, we acknowledge our wickedness, Lord. We have indeed sinned against you. And that's the problem, isn't it? Our sins are testifying against us. Well, the tax collector isn't confident in his own righteousness at all. He knows he's a sinner. There's no point arguing. The judge knows it. He knows it. But he also knows something else that the the Pharisee doesn't know. He knows that the judge is merciful. So he says, verse 13, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can you imagine actually being, I don't know whether you've been in court, can you imagine being up before the judge and you're guilty, you know you're guilty, the judge knows you're guilty, the evidence is plain, and the judge, you know, the, the judges get, the, the penalty's huge, fine. Massive fine, we can't afford it. But the judge also happens to be your father. Now, that would never happen because, obviously, they wouldn't be able to take the case because there'd be a conflict of interest. But imagine it did. Now, actually, that's not a bad picture of the situation that we're in before God. One day, the Bible says, we will all stand before the judge. There will be a judgment day, and we will be judged. But that judge is our father. Well, how does that judge feel towards us? What's he going to do? You know, he can't just ignore it. If If the fine is X, the judge can't just go, well, let's forget about that. 
Let's sweep that under the carpet. He wouldn't be a very good judge, would he? He wouldn't be just. What can he do in that situation? That's what Jeremiah is crying out. He actually says, Jeremiah 14, verse 7, our sins testify against us. Do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. What can he do? If the judge was in that situation and his son was up before him and the verdict was guilty and there was a huge fine to be paid, what can the judge do? Well, the Bible says there's a, there's a technical word for what happens and the word is, the word is atonement. The word is atonement. To atone for something means to make something right. So the, the hammer comes down, the verdict is guilty, the fine has got to be paid. But then the judge steps down from the bench, takes off his judge's wig and takes out his checkbook and writes a cheque for the full amount. And that's atonement. Justice has been done, but mercy has prevailed. And that's what's happening over and over again in the Old Testament. So where's the setting for this taking place? Verse 10 says they were in the temple. So these two guys are praying in the temple, and every day in the temple, sacrifices were being made for atonement, for sin. That's how it worked under the Old Testament. If you've done something wrong, then you have to bring a sacrifice. You know, you don't pay the penalty, you know, you bring a lamb, or you bring a, you, if you can't afford a lamb, you bring a, a bird. And the blood of the sacrifice is shed to make atonement for your sin. That was happening. So during the, while these guys are praying, and when the guy in verse 13 prays, God have mercy on me, the word for mercy there, it's a technical word. It's not the normal word for mercy. It's the word which says, please God make atonement for me. Would you atone for my sin? And all the way through, as we've been going through Luke's Gospel, we've always, we've been, everything is pointing forward to Jerusalem. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. It's constantly pointing forward to the climax of the Gospel, which is the cross. And the same here, verse 10. They went up to the temple. Where was the temple? In Jerusalem, where atonement was made. Well, Jesus Christ went up to Jerusalem. And he there made atonement once for all, the perfect, one sufficient sacrifice. There's no more temple left, no more sacrifices need to be made because he's the perfect sacrifice to make atonement for our sin. And because of what he has done for us, that means we can be justified. So in a moment, we're going to receive Holy Communion. And as we imagine, we're going to make our way forward to receive Holy Communion. Imagine just we're approaching God. We're coming before the judge. We're entering into his presence. Will he accept us when he looks at us? We might go, of course he will. I'm a good person. Well, Jesus says, well, look, none of us are a good person. Any answer that goes, yes, he will accept me because I, dot, 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 have done this, isn't going to fly. We might go, I couldn't possibly come forward because I have been too bad. Well, that's, again, any answer that goes I dot 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 is the wrong answer. It's not on the basis of what we have done, which is how to approach God. So we must say, like this guy, yes, God will accept me because you, because he has made atonement for us, because he is merciful. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So good, could God... Forgive even really bad people. Could he forgive Hitler? Well, not on the basis of what he's done, obviously. But none of us can be accepted before God on the basis of what we've done. But on the basis of what Christ has done, 
on the basis of the atonement. Well, in a moment, at the end of our service, we're going to sing this great song. To God be the glory, great things we have done. No. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Who loved us so much, he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin and open the life gates that all may go in. All. No matter how bad you've been. Even, it says in the next verse, the vilest offender. Even a tax collector. Even Hitler. The vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus. A pardon receives. Let's pray.